We're, uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm not working. Oh, there I go. Uh, 1 Corinthians, better change hands, I guess. Chapter 15. Um, we studied the resurrection plan last week. Uh, I've taken a whole lot of time on this chapter, and I apologize for that. But it is so important for us to understand the resurrection. Uh, so important for us to believe the resurrection. And there's so much evidence in this chapter right here attesting to the resurrection. And it's something that we want to uh, be familiar with, first to embolden our faith. That's the primary objective. But also uh, so we can explain it to other people. Because when you start talking about the resurrection of the dead, man, that, you know, you're really getting far out. Uh, it's not something we've ever witnessed, and it just seems too good to be true. And uh, a lot of people just can't accept it. And, it, you know, it's understandable when you stop and think that most people have a world view rather than a, uh, a God view. And because of that, uh, there's just too many things people don't understand. Uh, even in the church, I'm, I'm debating on what to preach next hour because uh, uh, so, there's so many people that they don't understand the spiritual view of life. Not really. I mean, a lot of even believers, they believe, you know, in Jesus and they go to church and all that stuff. But when it comes to uh, 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 a worldview, how they look at life, uh, it's not necessarily correct. And that's, uh, that's uh, it's a little bit frightening to me because uh, no matter who we are, the world has an impression on us. We're affected by the worldview. Uh, to some degree, all of us are affected. Uh, just how much we're affected it's going to be determined by how much we understand about the biblical view of life. And uh, I, I don't know what I'm going to preach yet, so hopefully I'll say something this hour, you will, and I'll figure out what to do about it. But anyway, for the moment, we're going to go on now to the resurrection incentives, uh, why uh, they should have believed in the resurrection. At Corinth, these are Christians, of course, uh, they, were, they were baptized into Christ, uh, symbolic of uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. Uh, they apparently believed in the resurrection. That's why they were baptized into Christ. But somewhere along the line, uh, they don't believe in it anymore. Different reasons, I suppose. But uh, the bottom line is they don't believe anymore. Uh, the teaching that's going on at Corinth, they had a lot of false teachers, and this was the big problem. Uh, they were teaching that there was no resurrection of the dead. It's, uh, it was figurative, okay? Uh, uh, being born again, that's the resurrection. There's no real resurrection of the dead. It's just uh, resurrection of the inner man, so to speak. And uh, this is what the scholarly preachers at Corinth uh, were teaching. Uh, Corinth and also at Athens, of course. These were all the intellectuals were. These were all the PhDs. Uh, they understood more than everybody else, and uh, they explained to them the real truth of the matter. 
and now the Corinthians, they're all confused as to what's going on. Uh, Paul, his letter is going to have a great impact on them uh, because when he comes back and writes 2 Corinthians, you're going to see that a lot of attitudes have changed. But at this moment, they, uh, they've been taught not to accept the resurrection of the dead. And uh, in our own culture, you know, people laugh at us all the time, actually believing that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. How silly. And then a lot of the people who do claim to believe in the resurrection of the dead, when it comes to talking about it intelligently, they're unable to do that. Why do you believe? Well, because the Bible says so. I mean, that's the only real reason they've got for believing in something that's as incredible as the resurrection of the dead. Uh, number one, their faith can't be too strong because you got to have evidence. You know, the more evidence you accumulate, the more you can believe. So when you just believe because somebody said so or the Bible said so, yeah, you believe, but your belief can't be very strong. Uh, therefore, you have to accumulate evidence. And number two, like I said, so they'd be able to teach other people uh, why the resurrection is a matter of fact. So uh, this is why Paul's uh, writing, and this is what he's saying about it, why the Corinthians ought to believe what he taught them when he had been with them. He raises the question in verse 29, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Apparently, some were practicing a, a baptism for the dead in one way, shape, fashion of another. Uh, what is it, the Mormons that go around writing down tombstones and all that stuff? Uh, and they baptize for the dead. Uh, that's why they want to know who's buried in dust and so place. And uh, if they weren't a faithful Warren, uh, somebody will be baptized in their stead. And uh, that will enable this person to be going to heaven when they're resurrected from the dead. If it seemed incredible that these folks believed in baptism for the dead back then, it's still very popular today. So uh, it's, it's something that's been around ever since the church has. What will they do? I mean, they say there's no baptism for the dead. I mean, <laughs> say there's no resurrection of the dead. Well, why are they baptizing for the dead? You know, why would you do that if there's no resurrection of the dead? That's his question. Why then are they baptized for the dead? And, and why do we, that is, uh, we the apostles and other inspired people, that's okay, honey, you ain't going nowhere. Why do we stand in jeopardy uh, every hour? Paul and the rest, their lives were on the line, so to speak, literally on the line. And the same thing's true today. There are people uh, who risk their lives uh, to teach the gospel. Uh, I remember one time we were uh, in India and we had to slip away. <laughs> there were some people hunting us down and uh, we had to slip out by night. We traveled so many three or four hours at night, and then we'd have to hide and uh, wait until the next night, and then we'd slip out and go a little bit farther. Uh, why do people do things like that? Why would you do it if there's no resurrection of the dead? Why would you risk your life? And this is Paul's question. If there were no resurrection of the dead, why would I risk my life teaching a resurrection of the dead? That's just silly. Why would you put your life uh, in jeopardy if it's not true? Uh, and it's a valid question. 
I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily on a daily basis. Uh, he surrendered his life. Every day for Paul, especially, I suppose, uh, was the last day of his life. Whenever he got up in the morning, today was the day he would die, or so the odds would say. Uh, and in some cases, he may have uh, died uh, and then brought back to life, as we know, uh, on one occasion at least and probably more. But uh, he anticipated death every day. I die daily. He was prepared for it. He was ready for it. Uh, he expected it. And nevertheless, uh, he went on and proclaimed the gospel. Why would I do that, he's saying? If there is no resurrection of the dead, where's the incentive? I mean, it doesn't make sense. Why be a Christian if there's no resurrection for the dead? I've heard some people say, well, it's the best life you can live. No, it's not. It is not the best life you can live. The best life you can live is doing what you want to do if there is no resurrection of the dead. Why spend yourself? Why would anybody do that if there is no resurrection of the dead? The Christian life, from a world point of view, is a horrible life to live. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's drab. It, it, it doesn't, you know, you don't get to get out on New Year's Eve and get drunk and party, at least not without, you know, guilt or something like that. Uh, why, why would anybody do that? We're all Christians because we want to go to heaven. We anticipate we shall. That's why we became Christians. I became a Christian because I've got two alternatives, heaven or hell, and I didn't want to go to hell. And I became a Christian. Somebody said, well, that's a sorry reason. I know it is. But that was the reason I became a Christian. It changed. As I learned a little bit, it did change. And it wasn't so much I was running away from hell as I was trying to run to heaven. Things changed. But in the beginning, we didn't want to go to hell. We wanted to be resurrected from the dead. This was our hope. And this is why we followed Jesus. Reasons change with time. But you take a person, a world-minded person, and try to persuade them the Christian life's the best life to live, and you're not going to do it. They won't believe you. Because you sacrifice your life, they spend their life. A big difference there. Why do we do this? if there is no resurrection of the dead. That's Paul's argument. And if people would just ask themselves honestly, there is no good reason to be a Christian if there is no resurrection of the dead. You know, I mean, he'll go on to say directly that we're the biggest fools of all, if such is the case. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? Uh, in the Colosseums, uh, most of the bigger cities, they all had Colosseums. Uh, the Romans built these Colosseums and amphitheaters and things like that uh, for entertainment for the people, uh, to keep down revolutions and all that stuff. But they built them in uh, all the major cities. And one of the things that were, was done uh, in the 60s AD was uh, they would uh, take uh, Christians and uh, they would have to fight uh, animals. And if not Christians, they would take slaves. 
uh, they called them gladiators, uh, they would uh, make these people uh, fight tigers, lions, and things like that. Uh, they, they would bring in animals from all over the world, exotic animals, and uh, men would have to uh, fight these animals. Uh, did Paul fight these animals? I don't know. Personally, I don't think he did. Uh, I think he's talking about animals figuratively speaking. Uh, I may be wrong. It could have been animals. But I think he's talking about uh, malicious men, mean men, mean-spirited men, men who wanted to destroy him. Uh, like uh, in Athens, when he was in Athens, uh, they wanted to, uh, Demetrius and uh, a bunch of silversmiths, they wanted to uh, put him to death because he was uh, interfering with their livelihoods. Uh, I think uh, this is what he's talking about. Uh, the beast, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think he's talking about the men he had to contend with. Uh, why? Why would I do this? What's the advantage to it? Why wouldn't I just go to the uh, to Greece and, and, and live large? Why would I do this? It doesn't make sense. Uh, why spend your life at war? If the dead do not rise, Lord, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This was a, a verbiage that uh, was coined, I don't know, at least by the Israelites uh, back in Isaiah's day. Uh, they, uh, they were sort of on the brink of death, and, but they didn't believe they would die. But they were taking it lightly, and uh, they would say, uh, let us uh, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Assyrians are outside the city of Jerusalem uh, waiting to get in there and destroy them. And instead of uh, repenting of sin, they, uh, they partied. Let us eat and drink. Tomorrow we die. If we're going to die, let's do it in a big way. And uh, it, it was a phrase, and that's what Paul's saying here. Uh, if there is no resurrection of the, the dead, you know, why not party hardy? You know, what, what have you got better to do with your time? Uh, and I think most people would agree with that if there isn't an advantage. It sounds horrible to say we want an advantage, but we do. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to live. It's better than dying, especially eternally. Uh, but that's one of the things, one of the incentives uh, that motivates us to being faithful to God is uh, what the future holds for us. Uh, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And this is uh, basically what was happening in the church. In the context, I think Paul's talking about uh, people in the church. The people that the church was associating with was people in the church who really weren't spiritual-minded people. Uh, they're teachers. Uh, these people can have a, a harmful effect on you. Don't 
think otherwise. You think you can, uh, you, you can withstand the temptations they hurl out at you. Maybe you will some, but you won't all. They'll get the better of you sooner or later. Do not be deceived. If you associate with uh, evil people, you're going to be affected by those people. And we are, too, in our culture. And that's one of the reasons why we have to deal with culture so much. People get upset when we start talking about culture. Uh, you shouldn't talk about such things. There's a woman told me one time, the only thing you should ever talk about is what goes on in the Bible, not what goes on in our country. Huh? What are you talking about? And she was serious as a heart attack. Uh, you know, how do you do that? How do you talk about the Bible without talking about our culture? Uh, Jesus talked about culture. The apostles talked about culture. You've got to talk about culture. This is part of our life. And my job and others like me, our jobs is to help people uh, grow spiritually. And the only way you can do that is by warning of the dangers of culture. And culture is very dangerous. You can turn on the TV and lose your mind in about 30 minutes if you're not careful because of uh, what is suddenly before you uh, in a matter of moments. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Righteousness. Uh, righteousness are the commands of God, Psalm 119, 172. Uh, all your commands are righteousness. And they are. Uh, they, they teach us the way of righteousness. Awake to righteousness. Awake to the scriptures. Awake to what the Lord has said. Believe what the Lord has said. Uh, understand what the Lord has said. Live by what the Lord has said. Trust in what the Lord has said. Don't be affected by the culture that you're being affected by. But listen to the Lord. Awake. Come out of your sleep, out of your slumber, out of your stupor. Get your head out of the sand. Look at what's going on around you. Don't be afraid to address your culture, but be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. You have to know so you can protect yourself and the people you care about from potential dangers. Awake to righteousness, what's right, and do not sin. Uh, if you don't know what the Lord wants, how do you keep from sinning? If I don't know what a sin is, how do I keep from sinning? If they didn't post speed limit signs on the highway, how would we keep from getting a ticket? It's because we see the sign, the speed limit that's posted. And because I now know what the speed limit is on this highway, I can drive at a certain speed and not get a ticket. But if I don't know what the speed limit is, how do I keep from getting a ticket? How do you keep from sinning if you don't know what sin is? Awake to righteousness. And that raises a personal question for me. How much time do I spend studying the Word of God? 
That's where I find out what the law is. That's where I know what righteousness is. And if I don't spend time trying to understand the law, I'm going to violate the law. I saw a child one time going to get their driver's license, and they got them a little booklet, and they read that booklet very carefully. Uh, study over and over and over and over. And the reason they studied that book so hard was because when they took their driver's test, they wanted to make sure they passed that test so they would get their driver's license. I understand that. If I believe eternity can be had, it's possible. And that the Bible contains the information I need to make heaven my reality. How much time am I going to spend studying that book? When I got a driver's license, I studied a book. I had only been in Tennessee for about two weeks. I didn't know what the laws were. They asked me who the governor was. I don't know who the governor is. <laughs> I didn't know anything. So I got a speed limit book or a driver's license book, whatever they call it, and I read that book because I wanted to pass the test. Well, we have to pass the test also. How much time do we spend studying the Bible? Seriously. Awake to what righteousness actually is, and thereby we can avoid sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. Therefore, they can't avoid sin. I speak this to your shame, the fact that you don't know <clears throat> the knowledge that God has given you. He's given you uh, ample opportunity to know him, but they hadn't taken advantage of it. Therefore, they were being snookered by false teachers, and they believed something that wasn't true, for some of them, even that there was no resurrection of the dead. I, you ought to be ashamed, Paul said. <clears throat> the resurrected body is the next section I got, uh, 35 through 49. Someone will say, well, how are the dead raised up? Everybody wonders about that, don't you? I mean, everybody. What about cremation? How many times have I had people tell me that you can't be cremated because how would the Lord gather up all your parts? You know, I, I, I hate to say it. I try not to, but I get a little bit tickled whenever I hear that. Uh, you know, when you get put in the ground, you, ashes to ashes, dust to dust and all that, <laughs> you're going to be a lot of parts anyway. How does the Lord gather up all those parts? especially if they decide to put in a tennis court and they come through and they bulldoze up uh, the cemetery. How many cemeteries have been dug up uh, that nobody even knew they dug up because all the bodies had returned to ashes to ashes and dust to dust? How does the Lord gather up all those parts? We have to be uh, reasonable when we think about matters like that. Uh, how does the Lord gather up the parts of the body? I don't have a clue. I don't know. I know he does. I know he did, and I know he does. 
it's not a big deal for God. He made it originally from the earth. That doesn't seem like a big deal. He did a whole lot of things on the day he created Adam. So it must have been something he could do rather quickly. Uh, I don't know. How does the Lord gather up a cremated body? I don't know. I don't know how the Lord gathers up a body that was planted in the earth. I don't know. You know, we go to the cemetery and we got all these nice little plots. If time continues for a thousand years, you think all them plots are still going to be there? It's going to be an airport or something. You know, <laughs> all our dust to dust and ashes to ashes are going to be scattered everywhere. They don't stay long. They just stay through a few generations, and then they return to what they, or they go to what they're going to be. How are the dead raised up? I don't know. Paul didn't know. He knew what would take place. He knew what the big picture was, but he couldn't give you a detailed explanation of how that was going to happen, and neither can any of us. And when somebody asks us, we just need to tell them the truth. I don't know. The Lord doesn't tell us things like that. Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Uh, he's using uh, just uh, the natural law, what we know about everything. Uh, at one time in its existence, uh, corn, as it grew, was alive, we would say. It was receiving nutrients from the earth. And then came the time when the corn died. The nutrition was cut off. And it was at that time you could take the corn, put it back in the earth, and you could grow more corn. Okay? Before you could plant the corn, it first had to die. Well, you foolish person, he's saying, don't you know that the body first must die before it can be brought back from the dead? <clears throat> It's a, it's a logical step. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. Uh, it's kind of fascinating to me that you can take a little bitty grain of corn and grow a you know seven or eight foot stalk from it. You know, this little bitty thing, and all of a sudden you got this great big thing that came out of it. Uh, I've, I find that fascinating. Uh, but what you put in the ground, that's not what comes out of the ground. You put this little kernel in the ground, and what comes out of the ground is this giant stalk with a couple of ears on it. Okay? It, it's different. It looks different. It's not the same thing. It's a different thing. The body that went in the ground is not the same as the body that comes out of the ground. It died, it came back to life. I always thought this is one of the reasons why Jesus was resurrected in the spring. Everything comes back to life in the spring. It's a kind of a resurrection of nature. Everything's been dead all winter and all of a sudden, bang, everything starts coming back to life. Jesus came back to life. I, I may not be anything to it, but I've always thought it was attractive thought what you sow you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain perhaps wheat or some other grain 
you got the grain in the ground, what comes forth is different than that grain. We're going to be planted in the ground, and what comes forth from the ground is going to be different than what was put in the ground. It's not going to be the same. It's going to be different. What are we going to look like? I don't know. I have no idea. But we're going to be different, just like a kernel of corn is different when it comes forth. But God gives it the body as he pleases. That's what God does. He gave from the, the kernel, God designed this new body that was going to come forth. It's his design. It was his will that was done. And that's what's going to happen in the resurrection of the dead. It's God's design that's going to come forth will be what God wants us to be. And to each seed is going to come its own body. Every seed, which is our body, uh, is going to produce a body uh, of its own. They're going to be alike, I believe, but uh, different than what was planted in the ground. Hey, I'm all for that. If my same body came back, I think I would be depressed. I don't want to live in it again. I'm, one time's enough, huh? things hurt me sometimes. <laughs> Let's change this thing. But uh, God gives it a body as he pleases. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh, the human flesh. Then there's another kind of flesh, the animals. We look different than cows or dogs. And God designed different fleshes for different creatures. Uh, it's all flesh, but it's different flesh. There's another flesh of fish. I never thought about fish being flesh. I just thought about fish tasting good. But uh, they got flesh too. And there's another flesh of birds. You got man, you got the animal, you got the fish in the water, and you got the birds in the sky. God gave them all different bodies. He designed the bodies and the bodies that exist are the bodies that God wanted to exist. So is the resurrection of the dead. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I know what's going to take place, even though I don't know what it looks like. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. Some of them King James words are hard for me to understand. So um, if I don't go back and look at the Greek text, uh, I generally look at another version, the ESV version, most of the time, it's more simple. The ESV says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. What's a celestial body? It's a heavenly body, the sun, the moon, the stars. What are the earthly bodies? Well, the earthly bodies are everything on the earth, the trees, the birds, uh, the grass, uh, all that stuff. They're different. There are the heavenly bodies in what we call space, Space is everything above the ground. And then there are bodies that come forth from the earth. They're different. They're different. The glory of the heavenly is one kind. And the glory of the earthly are another kind. They look different. Uh, when I look at the stars, sometimes it's very impressive. Especially when you can see all the stars. I'm man, a, a gazillion of them things out there. But then there's times when you look at the earth, and boy, it's impressive too. I always love to look at the Smoky Mountains when the smoke's up at the top, 
well, what we call smoke. And uh, you can't see the tops. I always thought that was so cool about five o'clock in the morning. Uh, I love to look at the world that we live in, but uh, each have got their own glory. We're fascinated by each for a different reason. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Even though they're all heavenly bodies, they all have their own glory. They're all different in their own special ways. Why? Because God gave each a body as he pleases. He did everything what he did by design. Greatest engineer that's ever been is God. Uh, did it all in six days. Martin Luther, uh, he didn't believe that God created the earth, heavens and the earth in six days. And uh, somebody asked him why, and he said, because it, that's, that's too much time. God could have done all that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. <laughs> I believe that too. But God wanted to do it in six days, and therefore he took six days to do it. Reckon there's a reason why he did that? That's right. There's a lot of lessons that comes forth from them six days and even the seventh. But uh, we can see the, the order in which things were created is very important. Each step was necessary to make the next step a possibility. Okay? And there's a lot of logic, a lot of reason, a lot of design that was involved, and God did all those things. But there's another thing that came forth that a lot of people never do consider. And that is, uh, when God created the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day, he created the week, the seven-day week. We know where the year comes from, calculation of the year. We know where the calculation of the month comes from. But one thing that nobody knows is where did the calculation of the week come from? And the only place you find the calculation of the week is in the book of Genesis, where God created everything that exists and six days and rested the seventh. You got the week. There's so many things to learn in Scripture. Anyway, uh, each has their own glory. Okay, they're all heavenly bodies, but each is distinct in its own way. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Uh, a worn-out body is put into the earth of new and vibrant body will come forth from the earth, just like uh, the grain of corn that becomes a stalk. Uh, the stalk shoots out of the earth. It pushes the dirt clods out of its way, and it comes forth. It's alive, it's vibrant, it's living, it's powerful. And so will be the resurrection of the body. It'll come forth the same way, being incorruptible. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It was a vessel um, that was uh, condemned because of sin. Uh, it was a, a, a vessel that did not uh, succeed in life. The only one that ever did was Jesus Christ. 
uh, and the rest of us have sinned and the wages of our sin is death. Uh, we are sown in death and dishonor, but will be raised in glory because we've overcome. We're victors, we're more than conquerors uh, through Christ who loves us. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Uh, boy, I remember when I used to be a strong man. Now uh, I'm a weenie. Uh, you can bowl me over pretty easily. Uh, actually, I fall on my own. <laughs> you don't even have to push me anymore. Sometimes I just tumble like a weed. Uh, why? Well, the thing's wearing out, okay? It's weak. Once it was strong, now it's weak. Uh, it's what happens to bodies. You wear them out. Uh, it is on a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body uh, like us. We're spirits, uh, we're immortal, we'll never die, we'll always be. Most fascinating thought of all. Uh, the body, thank you, sir. I don't feel so bad now. Uh, these hurt, big thing. You buy them on the TV, and boy, you just set them down, walk off, and leave them. You set it down, walk off, and leave them. It's gonna fall. Them things fall all the time. You gotta, you gotta wiggle them around to make them stand up straight. Uh, it is on a natural body, raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. Uh, and the spiritual body is one will inhabit uh, after the resurrection. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Uh, in Adam, we all had to die. Not, uh, we, didn't, uh, we didn't have to sin. Uh, Protestant denominationalism, well, Roman Catholicism too, Greek Catholicism also, well, they all teach it, uh, that we sin because Adam sinned, and that's not true. We don't sin because Adam sinned, uh, we die because Adam received the penalty of death for his sin. We must die. Uh, we sin of our own volition. We sin because we choose to sin. Or sometimes we just sin because we're ignorant. We don't know what righteousness is, and therefore we commit sin. But it, Adam, we don't have to sin. That's my point. Uh, my sins, they're on me. They're not on anybody else. I mean, I might be tempted by people, but the sin belongs to me. And uh, I'll, I'll have to own my sin in order to uh, receive forgiveness of it. Uh, so we don't want to go blaming Adam. Uh, in Adam, we, we, we must die. In Christ, we can come back to life, okay? You see what's happening? And this, of course, is all by design. Uh, as we, we die, because of Adam and his sinfulness in Christ, we live because of his sinlessness. It's just the opposite. Uh, so life is found in Christ. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. God formed the body of Adam from the dust of the earth. Then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. What came first, the body or the spirit? I know the answer to that one. 
the body came first and then the spirit was put in the body that's the way we're made now uh god forms or fuses rather would be the best way to understand it god fuses the spirit within the body that's within the womb of the mother uh, he makes two become one uh, and that's called me uh, and so it was in the beginning uh, Adam was created from the dust of the earth and God breathed in his life the breath of life and so it is in biological life uh, there's conception and then God places the spirit in the body. The body comes first, the spirit comes second. And that's what he's saying here. There's also the natural, which would be in Adam, it came first. Then there's the spiritual in Christ, which came second. The first man, he was of the earth, he was made of dust. The second man is the Lord, he came from heaven. Uh, sometimes we may uh, lose track of that. Uh, Jesus, of course, lived in heaven uh, he's referred to as the Word in John chapter 1. Uh, before he was born into the world, he was called the Word. The Word is uh, the expression of an idea or a thought. Jesus is the expression of God. Uh, so he's called the Word. Uh, he was uh, from heaven uh, and born into the world. Uh, Adam, he, he was made from dust. That's where he originated from. Uh, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust, that's us. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Uh, those who become spiritual individuals like Jesus, those who walk with Jesus, those who awake to righteousness and follow it, uh, they will live through Jesus just like we live as a result of the man Adam, our great-grandfather. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's a body of clay, uh, Adam had a head and a couple eyes and nose and mouth years, we bore his image, so also we're going to bore the image of Christ, the resurrected Christ, when we're raised from the dead. Okay, uh, next time uh, we might get done with chapter 15. Uh, it's uh, not a lot to go before we finished.